0: glad you're here with us today. It's nice to have you. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, as we continue our study through this gospel. The sermon title this morning is Lord of the Sabbath. Lord of the Sabbath. If you're wondering the connection between youth ministry and Sabbath... There's nothing. I've got nothing for you. Sorry. <laughs> We're just continuing our study through Matthew. I guess that the Lord wanted a lot of you young people to hear about the Sabbath and to learn convictions around that. So, Matthew chapter 12. This is really a milestone passage uh, in this gospel, in our study through this gospel. It's, uh, it's here that we have uh, the, kind of the, the mounting opposition against Jesus Christ is beginning to crystallize. Into a conspiracy to kill him. And so, storm clouds are going to gather on the horizon of Jesus' life in this passage, and those storm clouds are going to take the shape of a cross. And so, this is a significant passage in really this gospel, but also in many ways in the life and history of the church. Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 14. Let's prepare ourselves to be addressed by God Himself through the reading and the preaching of his word. This is the word of the Lord. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest? Or, Have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath, the priest in the temple profaned the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? of how much more valuable is a man than a sheep. So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Trust the Lord will bless now the preaching and the believing of His Word. The controversy in this passage revolves around the Sabbath. It revolves around God's command to rest one day in the seventh. This is the fourth commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do work, any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This is the longest of the Ten Commandments, and it is also the most com- controversial the Puritan John Owen once remarked that through various controversies, the Sabbath itself has been given very little rest. There has always been controversies around the Sabbath. There was in Jesus' day, there has been throughout church history, and there is in our day as well. Now, there are a great many views on the Sabbath, there's a broad spectrum of convictions around the Sabbath. Seventh-day Adventist and Messianic Jews still s- insist on a Sabbath rest and worship. Saturday, rest and worship. Fundamentalist churches regulate what can and cannot be done on Sundays. Presbyterians and Reformed theologians typically defend Sunday as the Christian Sabbath, and there are still many views out there, including the one that I will be teaching through later. Controversy surrounds the sub- the Sabbath. It has a complex and contentious history, and yet, in our day, Most Christians in America have not given it serious thought. Maybe one in a thousand, I would even say, I would even dare to say, maybe one in 10,000 Christians can give a decent biblical defense to why we are not bound by the fourth commandment and why we don't gather on Saturdays but on Sundays instead. Not one in maybe 10,000 Christians can give a decent answer to why this is, and yet, here we all are. Here we all are, and look at us go. We're not keeping the fourth commandment. We're not meeting on Saturday. We don't know the passages why. We can't give an answer. We've just jumped off the ledge with our eyes closed, hoping that we land in the will of God. But friends, this simply will not do. This is not God's will for us to simply jump off the ledge with our eyes closed, hoping that we land in the middle of God's will. His will for us is to love Him with all our heart, soul, and mind. This includes thinking deeply about the things of God. This includes thinking deeply about His Sabbath, and to know what we believe about the Lord's Day. The idea of the Sabbath goes, as we saw in Exodus chapter 20, goes all the way back to the creation account. Genesis 2 tells us that God labored for six days, he created for six days, and then he rested. The Sabbath began at creation, but it was codified at Sinai. The Sabbath started as a principle in Genesis, but it was ratified as a practice in Exodus. The Sabbath as a law came to us through Moses, and the Sabbath was the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. Exodus 31 verse 13 above all you shall keep my Sabbaths for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations. Most of the covenants in the Bible have a sign. Most of them have an outward symbol that testifies to important or inward realities. So the sign of the Noahic covenant was what? A rainbow. That's right. The sign of the Abrahamic covenant was circumcision. The sign of the Mosaic covenant was the Sabbath, we've just said, and the sign of God's new covenant with us through Jesus Christ is baptism. This is why we make such a big deal about baptism here. If you'd like to study that more, you can do so in Colossians 2 verses 11 through 15. Colossians 2:11 through15. The sign of the New Covenant is baptism. But the sign of the Mosaic Covenant was the Sabbath. It was the Sabbath that marked off the people of Israel as Yahweh's people under Yahweh's law. So you might think about it like this. Raise your hand if you know that Chick-fil-A is closed on Sundays. (laughs) Right. Everybody knows that. And everybody in their day knew that Israel was closed on Saturdays. Everybody in the world knew that Israel as a nation was shut down on Saturday because their God commanded them to be so. Sabbath observance was the law of the land and the sign of the nation. And all of that is important background to understanding how the Sabbath became the catalyst for conflict in our passage today. Our outline is simple. We've got two stories in our passage from which I'll draw two points. Two stories, two points, and then several applications at the end. I don't know why I did this when I said several applications, like spirit (laughs) fingers or something. I don't know. Two stories, two points, and I like that better. Applications at the end. Alright, number one, Jesus' declaration. Jesus' declaration. The first incident opens opens on a path where Jesus and His disciples are walking through a field of grain on a Sabbath. And Jesus' disciples are hungry, and so they begin snacking on the wheat. They're taking the heads of grain, rubbing away the chaff, popping the kernels in their mouth like we might pop sunflower seeds. And God's law permitted them to do this. These guys were not stealing. Uh, God's law made provision for hungry travelers. They were allowed to Pop the grains off of, of the sides of the fields of the harvest. Now, this was their version of a drive through for hungry travelers. Didn't have a McDonald's, didn't have a Chick-fil-A, and so this is what you could do. This was perfectly okay. It was no violation of stealing of, of that commandment, except that this was taking place on the Sabbath. Verse 2 tells us, But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look. Your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath." So the issue here is not stealing, the issue here is Sabbath observance. The Pharisees were probably thinking of Exodus 34.21, which forbids plowing or harvesting on the Sabbath. So they were stretching that out to try to say that the guys were harvesting. As they saw the disciples were breaking the law. When they plucked the grain, they were guilty of harvesting it. When they rubbed it in their hands and blew away the chaff, they were guilty of threshing and winnowing it. And all of this violated their understanding of the Sabbath. The Pharisees were very strict in their religious observances. And they were particularly meticulous in their observance of the Sabbath. So get this. There are only five passages in all the Old Testament that specified what kind of work was forbidden on the Sabbath. Five passages. Only five passages, but these guys ascribed to an oral tradition that listed 39 categories of work with a total of 1,521 details of the kinds of work forbidden on the Sabbath. Five passages, 1,521. So these guys had rules on top of rules. These guys were swimming in rules. And while there are several rules you might expect to see, such as you could not plow, or you could not hunt, or you could not butcher, there were a whole lot of rules you'd probably be surprised to see. I'll give you a few examples. You could not tie or loosen a knot. You could not sew more than one stitch. You could not throw something in the air and catch it with the other hand. You could, however, throw something in the air and catch it with the same hand, (laughs) but not the other hand. You could not take a bath because if water splashed onto the floor or dropped off of your body, you could be guilty of washing the floor. Careful there. You couldn't carry a burden that weighed more than a dried fig. Who knows how much a dried fig weighs? I mean, who's care- And you could not wear jewelry because jewelry weighed more than a dried fig. I suppose alternatively you could wear a dried fig, but you could not <laughs> wear jewelry. The Pharisees ascribed to thousands of laws on top of God's law, and in doing this, with the Sabbath particularly, they had turned it into a day where strict attention was given, had to be given, to endless regulations and restrictions. Under their guidance, the Sabbath had become a burden rather than a blessing. And so, in three short steps, Jesus responds to these men, giving a tour de force of all the major sections of their Hebrew Scriptures, the history, the law, and the prophets, to challenge and correct their understanding of the Sabbath. So my view is that they confront Jesus about the disciples. The disciples are kind of pausing, and then they see Jesus wind up, and they keep popping that grain. They say, this is going to be good. That's what Jesus go. And so Jesus gives three lessons, essentially, three passages, three lessons about God's law, about the Sabbath. Lesson number one, God's law was intended to serve God's people, not the other way around. God's law was intended to serve God's people, not the other way around. Beginning in one of their history books, uh, look at verses 3 and 4 with me. Jesus says, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him but only for the priest. So this is a story from 1 Samuel 21. The bread of presence was 12 loaves of bread that represented God's covenant with the 12 tribes of Israel. They were baked and placed in the tabernacle every Sabbath as an offering. And according to Leviticus 24, the old bread would be given to the priest to be ate in the holy place. It was bread for the priest... And yet God never condemned David for eating that bread when he was in need. David's need was real. He and his men were starving. And Jesus' point here is God's law was intended to serve God's people, not the other way around. This is where Mark in his gospel adds Jesus saying, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Mark chapter two, verse twenty-seven. God's law was intended to serve God's people, not the other way around. Lesson number two: God's law knows priorities. God's law knows priorities. Turning to the law in verse five, Jesus says, "Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priest in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless?" So priests worked in the temple on the Sabbath. They had to butcher the animals, and they had to lift those dead carcasses up onto the altar. Dead carcasses, I would guess, that weighed more than a dried fig. Priests worked hard on the Sabbath, but they were guiltless because the work of the temple was more important than the observance of the Sabbath. That's Jesus' point here. The work of the temple was more important than the observance of the Sabbath. In other words, God's law knows priorities. Some things are more important and take precedent over others. David's needs superseded the Sabbath regulations related to the bread of presence. And the priest work at the temple superseded the Sabbath regulation related to one resting from work. God's law knows priorities. And then speaking of priorities, Jesus takes it all the way home when in verse 6 he says, I tell you, I've got something to say to you, now it's my turn. Something greater than the temple is here. The temple represented the presence of God. But Jesus is greater than the temple because he is the presence of God with us. The temple represents the sacrifice that reconciles us to God, but Jesus is greater than the temple because he is the sacrifice that reconciles us to God. What Jesus is doing here is he is lay, listen, He is laying a foundation that he will build upon later. that his disciples are free to work on the Sabbath. Because, like the priest in the temple, they must be free to serve the one who was greater than the temple. God's law knows priorities. Lesson number three, God wants mercy more than He wants ritual. God wants mercy more than He wants ritual. Turning to the prophets in verse 7, Jesus said, And if you had known... What this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. Here Jesus quotes Hosea 6, verse 6. And sacrifice represents all the religious rituals in the cultic system. More important to God was mercy than them. Jesus saying, if you knew what God really wanted... You would have shown mercy to my, my disciples, not required them to meet your strict standards. God wants mercy more than ritual. Jesus then concludes all of this with his bold declaration in verse eight. This is the, the climax of the story. Verse 8: four, he says, "The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath." Now, it's just impossible for me to convey to you what kind of a game changer this statement was. Here Jesus asserts his absolute sovereignty over the Sabbath. God created it, God codified it, and now Jesus claims it. The Sabbath is his day. It's amazing if you think about it. Jesus never argued with the Pharisees about whether his disciples were guilty or not. Did you notice that? He never, he never went tick for tack and said, you know, actually, no, they're not. Actually, no, they didn't. Jesus never argued with them. He didn't try to settle the argument like that. Instead, Jesus began interpreting passages that showed he was bringing a new kind of authority, a new kind of freedom, and a new kind of criterion for what was permissible on the Sabbath. Jesus didn't get into an argument over if his disciples could pluck grain, or if they could, then how much could they pick? 20 pieces, 10 pieces, 5 pieces? He didn't get into any of that. Instead, Jesus took the conversation into a whole different direction, which culminated in, which climaxed in him declaring, the Sabbath exists for his sovereignty to be expressed over it. That's what Jesus is saying here. It's about Jesus being Lord of the day. The Sabbath is mainly about Jesus. It's about worshiping Jesus, it's about honoring Jesus, it's about resting in Jesus. And Friends, this is exactly where, in our Bibles, we need to remove the chapter breaks between 11 and 12. Remember, those chapter breaks and the verses are not inspired. They were added later. Usually they're helpful. They're like a little street address that tells us where we are or where we're going, and that's good when you need it. But they are not inspired, and sometimes they need to be removed so that we can see what's actually there. And if we remove the chapter break between 11 and 12, we notice more clearly the context immediately preceding this Sabbath controversy, that in chapter 11, verse 28, there's your street address, Jesus invites you, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The rest offered on the Sabbath was now being offered in Jesus Christ, the Lord of the Sabbath. In Jesus, not only is something greater than the temple here, but something greater than the Sabbath is here as well. And this raises the possibility of a future change or reinterpretation of the Sabbath, just as his superiority over the temple raises certain possibilities about future changes to the ritual law as well. That's Jesus' declaration. Point number two, then, is Jesus' demonstration. Jesus' demonstration. In verses 9 and 10, the scene changes. Jesus was in a synagogue, now, on the Sabbath day, where a man with a withered hand was also present. And knowing Jesus was willing to heal people, even on the Sabbath, the Pharisees go about setting a trap for him. Little do they know, setting a trap for Jesus is like setting a squirrel trap out for a lion. I mean, it's just like useless. He's just going to bat it out of the way. But nonetheless, they try. Among their many laws, one is the laws of the Pharisees. One was that the only healing permitted on the Sabbath was a healing in the situation of, or was in a life and death situation. The only healing that could be done, the only healing that was permitted on the Sabbath, was in a life and death situation, or the other exception was uh, mothers in labor. There you go, women. You're welcome. (laughs) At least they acknowledge that, right? But other than labor and life-threatening situations, everything else was supposed to wait until the next day. So To give you another example, here's one of their laws. If, a, if you had an open wound that was bleeding, if you had a terrible wound that was bleeding, one could apply bandages to it, but one could not apply medica- or medicated bandages, bandages with medicine in them to it. Why? Well, because you could stop the bleeding, but you could not work healing. So this was their trap. And the man with the withered hand was their bait. His hand was not a life-threatening situation. But they were pretty confident Jesus wasn't going to wait a day. Which makes you wonder, what in the world did they have against Jesus? Right? <laughs> like Here's a man who wants to help. And what did they want to do? Use a man with a withered hand as bait. So they asked Jesus in verse 10, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And as he so often does, Jesus answered them with a question. He answered with a question that revealed both their faulty reasoning as well as their hardness of heart. Verses eleven and twelve he said to them, Which one of you has a sheep? I'm sorry, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Jesus argues here from the lesser to the greater. If people will rescue a herd animal, which has lesser value when they fall into a pit on the Sabbath, then surely Jesus can heal a man on the Sabbath because a man has greater value than an animal. Thus he concludes, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then without waiting for an answer from these guys, Jesus demonstrates the sovereignty he has just declared. Verse 13, then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other. This healing proves that Jesus truly is Lord of the Sabbath, but it also shows he is bringing a whole new understanding and a whole new approach to the Sabbath. Something new is here with him. That's the only thing that accounts for the depth of hostility we find in verse 14. That Jesus is so radically changing the Sabbath is the only thing that makes sense of the depth of hostility we find in verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. This is the turning point in Matthew's gospel. This is when a monstrous plan begins to form into a conspiracy to kill Jesus. This would lead to Jesus' death. In fact, in John chapter 5, verse 18, we're told, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So, this was huge to the Jews. On par with Jesus' claims to divinity was the way that he approached the Sabbath. The Pharisees would kill Jesus because, among other reasons, he was bringing a fundamental shift to the meaning and observance of the Sabbath. So, think about it like this Jesus came to accomplish our redemption, it's the very thing he and the Father had been working toward since the fall. I mean, just go back to Genesis chapter 2 for a minute, right? After God's finished creating the world, he rested on the seventh day. But when Adam and Eve fell out of his rest, which is what the fall is, they fell out of the rest of God, the present and rest of God. It's as if God stood up in that moment and started to work again. Not this time on creation, but this time on redemption. And God worked all through Israel's history until the fullness of time when he sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. And that work of redemption, that work of redemption was a work of new creation, and it was finally and decisively accomplished on the cross. Listen, Jesus was killed on a Friday, and then three days later, he rose from the dead to celebrate the victory he had won and the new creation he had inaugurated. He did that on a Sunday. Mark sixteen nine, John 20, verse 1. And Jesus made a point of appearing to his disciples on that same day, Sunday, John 20, verse 19 then his next appearance to them was one week later on a Sunday, John 20, verse 26. And the Holy Spirit was poured out 50 days later on a Sunday, Acts 2, verse 1. And the apostles set a pattern for us in meeting on Sundays, Acts 20, verse 7, and 1 Corinthians 16, 2. And John named Sunday the Lord's day, Revelation 1, And so in the main... The Christian church has never looked back. We've been Sunday people ever since. Behold, Jesus says, I make all things new. This is why the early church took the first day of the week as its day of worship and turned away from the Sabbath. The seventh day marked the victory of the first creation. But the first day marked the victory of the new creation. So, having said that, having laid such a theological foundation in Matthew chapter 12, let's take the rest of our time to consider a few more New Testament passages that unfold the implications of Jesus' lordship over the Sabbath. I'm going to look at two in Paul and one in Hebrews. There's many more we could look at, but this is all the time we'll take to look at. Two in Paul, one in Hebrews. I unfortunately don't have them for you up on the slides, and so you all just have to use your bibles <laughs> imagine that isn't that fantastic that's what we if you don't have a bible there are many in the pews you're free free to use them please turn with me to colossians to Paul, paul's letter to the colossians this is the first passage we want to look at colossians chapter 2 Colossians chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 16 and 17 in just a second. We're considering some of the implications of Jesus' lordship over the Sabbath. Declared and demonstrated in Matthew 12, and now in Colossians 2, look at what Paul says in verses 16 and 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are the shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now this is simply a stunning passage for a Jew like Paul to write. Paul lumps together food laws with festivals like the Passover, which happened once a year, new moon celebrations, which happened once a month, and Sabbaths, which were weekly observances, and he says all of them are only shadows anticipating the substance, which is Christ himself. For someone like Paul, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, he would say, this was simply scandalous for him to declare. These things, which are all central to a Jewish identity and central to Jewish righteousness, these things, he says, are only shadows of the things to come. The substance belongs to Christ. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you, whether you observe them or not. For our purposes, Paul is saying the Sabbath, along with all the other Jewish holidays, they matter not. They are not binding on you. It's fine if you do them. They can be helpful in a way. They can be instructive. They are not bad. But the most substance you are ever going to draw out of them is only a shadow of the real thing. So don't let anybody pass judgment on you whether you observe them or not. That's a stunning passage. Some would argue that we are still bound to the Sabbath because it's not just a Mosaic law, but it's also a creation ordinance. Meaning God observed the Sabbath, Genesis chapter 2, and so, so should we. But this cannot be right, or otherwise Paul would not have identified it as a shadow, and neither would he have said, it doesn't matter if you observe it. If food regulations have passed away and Paul puts the Sabbath on the same plane as them, then so too has mandatory Sabbath observance. Now, I wish I had time to take you back down or on down into verses 20 through 23. Um, I encourage you to look at that later this week. Write that on your notes, 20 through 23. Paul's basically saying here if you died to your past life, whether pagan or Jew, have you experienced freedom in Jesus Christ? Why would you submit again to the rules of your past life? The off-limit rules, like do not handle and do not taste and do not touch, Paul's painfully clear here. He says they have no divine authority. They're just human tradition with an appearance of wisdom, but actually of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. I just took you through them when I said you should do that, but there you go. That's verses 20 through 23. You should study them more of your own this week. They're powerful. Paul's clear. It's painful. Let's turn to our next passage, Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. If you're taking notes, you can write down chapter 14 and 15 is worth looking at as well as what's taught here is very similar to what's taught in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 through 10. Um, We don't have time to look at both these passages. We don't even have time to look at chapter 14 and 15 of Romans. So I just want to focus in on one very important verse, one very important principle Paul teaches in verse 5. He says, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike, all days the same. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Now, If an old covenant Israelite esteemed all days alike, all days the same, according to Numbers 15, he should be stoned to death. Yet evidently Paul felt no need to impose the Sabbath command on his Gentile converts in Rome. It would appear some wanted to keep the Sabbath, and so esteem one day as better than the other. Perhaps these were Jewish Christians who wanted to maintain the traditions of their fathers. Paul had no issue with that. Paul had no problem with that. There's nothing wrong with that so long as those Christians refrained from pressuring others to imitate them or suggesting that their acceptance was somehow hinged upon their observance of the Sabbath. For the sake of Christian freedom, for the sake of mutual love, Paul says simply and remarkably, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Alright, last passage. Last passage. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Some of you are like, man, this is a lot of theology, Jace. And I'm like, man, I'm just scratching the surface, people. This is this is this is so rich. This is so good. God's word is so rich. Hebrews chapter 4. Uh, If you look at this chapter this week, uh, you'll see its argument. This argument is complicated. Uh, I'll definitely give you that. But basically, what is being argued here is that the final, eternal, blood bought Sabbath, blood bought Sabbath rest, has begun. It has begun. We enter into it when we cease from our works and trust in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. That's the great and final meaning of the Sabbath. Christ has become our Sabbath rest. Christ has become our Sabbath rest. This is what Hebrews 4, 9 and 10 are saying. He says, So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his... Notice the past tense there. We have entered God's rest through faith in Jesus Christ. But then, the writer adds in verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. So you can see how this one's a little complicated. This one's a little confusing. So we we have entered it, and yet we must strive to enter it. In other words, what he's saying here is, Jesus has, re- has accomplished our redemption, but now we must apply it and consummate it. Our eternal Sabbath rest is Jesus, and He has begun. Our eternal Sabbath rest in Jesus has begun, but it has not been fully completed yet. But the point of Hebrews chapter 4 is Christ has become our final Sabbath rest. So in conclusion, let me try and tie all this together. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. His declaration and demonstration of His sovereignty over the Sabbath got Him killed. And yet, irony of ironies, Jesus' death on the cross actually provided for us a greater rest than the law of the Sabbath ever could. Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath for us and is himself our final Sabbath rest. The implications of this include the following The Lord's Day is not the Christian Sabbath. The Lord's Day is not the Christian Sabbath, Jesus is our Sabbath. And the Lord's Day is the day we meet and celebrate the victory, the new creation He inaugurated, and the rest He has secured for us through His death and resurrection. The Lord's Day and the Sabbath are not equatable. The old has passed away. Something new has come. And, other implication, believers in Jesus Christ are not under, are no longer obligated to keep the Sabbath. They may if they wish to. And listen, I even, believe, I even believe wisdom suggests that we do. I mean, seems like a good idea to imitate God's practices. Just throwing that out there. I'm not super smart, but that seems kind of obvious. God thinks it's a good idea. I probably think it's a good idea as well. I think I think Sabbath rest, resting one day in seven, is God's wisdom and God's blessing for us to receive as a gift. And maybe all the more so in our day, when we can work anytime, anywhere, taking calls on the weekend, answering emails after dinner, So practicing a kind of Sabbath on either Saturday or Sunday or even some other day may be wisdom, seems like wisdom, and Christians can do so if they choose to do so, but they must not impose it as a requirement on others or judge others for doing differently. Under the New Covenant, no Christian is bound to the Fourth Commandment. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Through faith we have entered his forever rest. And yet still we must continue to strive to enter it more fully. We must keep bringing our burdens to Jesus and resting in his forever grace. We need this every Lord's Day. And we need this every day. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. And every day in Him is Sabbath. So may the Lord give you wisdom, freedom, and joy as you live your rest in Him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Your Word is a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. Lord, we thank You for it. We also thank you for your many and varied gifts to us. How kind of you to set the example of a Sabbath rest. How kind of you to give Israel a law of rest. To say, hey, I have saved you. Enter into my rest. I have saved you and I command you to stop one day a week from all your work so you can remember how much I provide for you and how much I care for you. And How, much. how kind of you, God, to do that. And how kind of you in Jesus Christ to make every day our Sabbath in him. Jesus, you have completed the work that we can never do, which is to gain acceptance with your Father through our good deeds, through our righteous actions. Jesus, you have obeyed every law we can't, every law we haven't, every law we wouldn't. You have done what we cannot do, and we can rest in you. And so we do. Jesus, be our Sabbath rest, and I pray that you would help our church, I pray that you would help us to be an attractive light into this weary and heavy-laden world of what it looks like to have a Lord and Savior who gives rest and what it looks like to live in the rest of Jesus. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.